Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm Milena Rice. And I'm Will Saunders. You're listening to Episode 7, Constants or Not. On today's episode, we delve into a few of the famous constants in the astrophysical world and explore some new research that suggests that they might not be constant after all. This is incredibly important to find out because some might say all of astrophysics itself it relies on just a handful of constants. I can think of one scientist in particular who would argue that. I recall when I was a little kid, uh, my dad showed me a book he had picked out of the library called Just Six Numbers, written by Martin Rees. Martin is a very famous astrophysicist whose discoveries in cosmology are, are pretty world-renowned, and he's also a prolific author. Um, I didn't really understand the book. I was too little to appreciate cosmology, but I thought it was cool that there were six numbers and you could understand the state of the universe by understanding these six numbers, which are constant. Well, I'm going to challenge uh, your elementary school self right now. Do you remember any of those six constants? Let's see. One was the cosmological constant, of course. That's a really important parameter in the universe. I remember one was the ratio of the uh, electromagnetic force to gravity. That is, how much stronger is the electric force or the magnetic force than um, gravitational force? And I know from physics classes, it's important to calculate at some point. It's 10 to the 42, which is crazy. Of course, it's 42. <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> what else? <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I think one was um, the curvature of the universe, which is, I believe, close to but not exactly flat. Do you know, is that right? It's not exactly flat. It's slightly curved. We'll never know exactly whether it's completely flat because the uh, parameter would need to be exactly zero. And we can only say it's zero to within error bars. Oh, sure. Any deviation from those error bars would mean it would be curved. Right. Uh, that's a good point. I, I'm I'd... actually impressed that you know as many as you do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I should read the book again. It was probably you a really great book. You should read the book again. In any case, now that all of our listeners have been primed, today we'll bring you three constants that just might not be. Malena, what constant are you going to challenge today? So today I'll be talking about the year, and many of us know that Earth's year isn't actually constant, but it really doesn't change very fast. So on a human time scale, the year is roughly going to be the same length every single year. Speak for yourself. I feel like 2019 felt like it lasted significantly longer than 2018. <laughs> well, you know, perception-wise, but the, the, the Earth's speed around the sun is at least the same, even if our lives and our perceptions are a little bit different. Fair and so um, today I'm going to be talking about a planet, however, where the year actually is changing rapidly. And so in a human time scale, it's changing pretty dramatically and you're going to see different lengths of year as each orbit progresses. And so this astrobite is called Changing with the Tide and it was written by Mara Zimmerman and it's about a paper by Bailey and Goodman from 2018. 
All right, Melina, give us the rundown on this funky planet. Well, if you thought your deadlines were coming up faster and faster now, then be glad that you don't live on WASP-12b. So this is a hot Jupiter planet. It was discovered in 2008 around a main sequence F star, and it has an orbital period of around a day about the eccentricity of Jupiter. And the times of its transits have been found to be changing over time um, in a way that indicates that it might be spiraling into its host star. What kinds of mechanisms can decay an orbit like that? My understanding was that a single planet orbiting a single star is very stable for a long time. So would it need to have a companion then to evolve? How would that work? Yeah, so there are a couple of different ways that you might get the same observational signature. Uh, If it's spiraling in, then that could be due to tidal dissipation from the star, um, an actual orbital decay, which is what the authors are proposing as the actual reason that they're seeing the signatures that they are finding. Uh, You could also get the same signatures from periapse precession, which is where your orbits aren't closing perfectly because you have maybe other planets in the system that cause a not perfectly Keplerian potential in that local area. And so if your orbits don't close perfectly, then it'll your planet will process about the star and you'll be able to see different transit times if you have an eccentric orbit. Um, and the last is if you have a companion star or some other companion, then it will also impart a force and can cause your planet to accelerate in a direction that would manifest as different times of transits. So I dug into this a little bit and I found a movie that came out in 1961, a sci-fi movie called The Day the Earth Caught Fire. And in this movie, they argued that uh, nuclear weapons testing on the Earth had changed the nutation of the Earth. That's the short scale precession of the Earth's tilt. And that caused the Earth's orbit to change drastically and the planet to spiral into the sun. Wow. And the entire surface caught fire. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds very sensational. Yeah, I'm not sure how nuclear testing would do that. I mean, I guess I wouldn't know the specifics of it. You've worked at Los Alamos. Maybe you know a bit more than I do. Oh, no, no, no. Don't ask me. (laughs) I can tell you it's just confidential. (laughs) In any case, it's reassuring to know that there are more scientifically founded reasons that a planet can change its orbit. In the three cases that you've talked about, which seem more likely than the others? And what constraints do we have on them? Uh, So the authors discuss all three of these. Um, They first say that, you know, WASP-12 has these two M-dwarf companions at a projected separation about an arc second. And so maybe those could be causing this observed acceleration. Um, But the authors find that this produces only a very small effect. It can't actually account for the observations. The second idea that was presented was orbital precession. So if you have an eccentric orbit, again, then it'll sort of move around the star over time and it'll precess over some time scale that is determined by the mass of the companion and its separation. But they tell us that if you have an eccentric orbit, then your transits and secondary eclipses should be displaced in opposite directions in time as your ellipse is sort of moving around your star. And that's not what they see. They see them displaced in the same direction. And so they're concluding that this is probably a case of orbital decay. And subsequent papers have further confirmed this with more observations in the past year. 
So the authors focus on this case and they use MESA 1D stellar modeling to study the internal structure of the star that can reproduce these tidal dissipation mechanisms to actually cause that decay. Jumping back a few episodes into our archive, uh, we talked about how hard it is to simulate the internal structure of a star as it ages. So it sounds like a challenge to try to reproduce orbital decay by studying the inside of this star. Yeah, so there, there are definitely a lot of different parameters in these stellar models that can be tuned. It looks like one of the most important factors is where the convective layers of the star are, whether it has them and in what regions you would have these convective layers. And so the authors of this paper consider three different models a main sequence star with a small convective core, and also two different subgiant models that have different mixing length parameters, which is just a parameter that isn't very well constrained for stellar models. And they find that the first two models don't fit perfectly, but one of the subgiant models fits pretty well, but assumes an unrealistically high mixing length parameter. So there are sort of trade-offs to each of these models. That also the observational constraints really favor a main sequence star, and it looks like a main sequence star, but the decay rate that is expected is best matched by a subgiant that has lost its convective core. So none of these explanations appear to be fully consistent with all of the observational constraints without fine-tuning, but these give a couple of ideas of the types of stars that you might need. So fine-tuning is a question that has come up in lots of different subdisciplines within astrophysics. It's a little bit tough to exactly replicate the uh, physical phenomena that we see, and so we have a model, we simulate it, and then we have to change things just so to get them to match perfectly. In this study, are there any observations, Milena, that can be taken to help distinguish between these models without the need for fine-tuning the results? Yeah, if WASP-12b is decaying because of dynamical tides from a subgiant, then the star's core should have been spun up from internal gravity waves breaking and depositing angular momentum. And so if we're able to better understand the internal structure of this star, maybe through astroseismology, then we might get a better sense of what kind of star this is and how it's producing this tidal dissipation. Very cool. Yeah, I don't think we know that much about astroseismology. In in any case, time seems to be <laughs> running away from us, albeit a little less quickly than it would be on WASP-12b, but nevertheless, we've got to continue on to our next astrobite, which brings us to you, Will. Speaking of astroseismology, uh, that's the uh, topic of the astrobite I'm going to be talking about today. We talked about this field a few episodes ago and one of the more contentious issues both in the field and on the podcast is how you pronounce it <laughs> astro seismology astero seismology astero seismology but regardless um, this field considers oscillations in stars and so it's a really challenging field and how can it be used to challenge a constant that we know and love well in this specific case it's being used to challenge Newton's gravitational constant, that is big G. Anyone, even a high school student who's taken a simple physics class, knows the equation for gravity. G, mass 1, mass 2, divided by R squared. That's the force of gravity, and G is a constant. You just know it and plug it in. But what if it isn't constant? That's what the researchers 
worked on in this paper. The astrobite is called Cosmic Archaeology from an Ancient Pulsating Star, written by Oliver Hull. And the paper is written by Bellinger and Christensen Dalsgaard, published in 2019. So even the idea that G might not be constant totally blows my mind. Like that's a value that I just hard code into whatever I'm programming. So are you saying over long time scales, I might have to change all of this coding and, you know, totally adjust all my research to adjust for different values of G? Yeah, I really hope not. What are you trying to tell us that you're trying to make (laughs) physics harder for these high school students? How are you going to do that to them? (laughs) How, How would we even know if G isn't constant? The idea behind this research is if G changes over time, we can look at things that would behave differently with different values of G. And stars are kind of the principal example. This is where it connects to the asteroseismology, that if G were different in the past, certain stars would behave differently in the past. Basically, you're telling us that dinosaurs could have potentially walked along the surface of the ancient Earth like astronauts on the moon. (laughs) Low gravity. (laughs) Well, it's not that extreme. (laughs) So how did the authors study this effect? Did they use observations of stars at different ages and try to run models to understand them? They actually did both of those things, observations and models. Uh, But Mm -hmm. they just studied one star in this paper. And it's a very unusual star. It's 11 billion years old, and it's an M star. So it's very old and very common in the universe. But this one is unusual because it has extremely precise pulsations. That is, the oscillations in the core of the star, the asteroseismology part of this, correlates to changes in brightness that are extremely well calibrated and extremely regular. So how does studying this M star's pulsations give us constraints on the time variation of G. The idea is that if G were lower in the past, gravity would be weaker. So a star with weaker gravity would have a larger radius, it would be a puffier star, and it would actually be brighter and more luminous. These changes mean that the core would be a little different composition than under gravity that we currently have, and that would mean different oscillations. So that would mean that the oscillations observed in this very old M star would be different than the types of oscillations you would see in a young M star. So if the luminosity of the star would change, does that mean that it has a different evolutionary track on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram? You bet. Um, Most stars in the main sequence on the HR diagram move slightly up and to the left, that is slightly hotter and slightly more luminous. Not a lot, but a little in the main sequence. And even if G were different by a little, the star would take a different track. And so studying these oscillations help us identify the possible tracks that the star might take. It's actually astounding to me that we would be able to understand in a simulation how a star would move along the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram to enough accuracy that we could be able to detect a deviation from Uh, time-varying G constant. That's incredible to me. It's really hard. Can you you tell me a little something about the models they used? You guys both run models for your research, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how long do your more complex models take? Uh, For the stuff I was doing at Los Alamos, maybe a month or two for a full-scale cosmology simulation. Wow, that's longer than I expected. Milena, how long do yours take? 
varies dramatically, okay. <laughs> but usually no more than, I don't know, a couple weeks. Well, yeah, Alex, more than a month is, is long, but these guys ran a simulation that took six months. So huh. it's still pretty long, but I guess it doesn't seem quite as impressive anymore. <laughs> it's, not a co- it's not a competition. <laughs> <laughs> Why does it take so long to simulate a star in this case, whereas Alex simulating this massive chunk of the universe might be significantly faster? It's a complicated issue. I don't really purport to understand it fully. And the best that I can do is say that asteroseismology models have a crazy number of knobs that can be turned. They use a Markov chain Monte Carlo approach in combination with Bayesian statistics. And the goal is to match the models to the observations. But the models have all these free parameters. We don't really understand a lot of them. Some of them might be constant. Some of them might be changing. And narrowing down based on limited observations all the potential parameters is a lot of computing power. Yeah, I really relate to this because my undergrad thesis was largely creating models to try to understand this one specific debris disk. And effectively what you would do is within this Markov chain Monte Carlo framework, just keep producing models, checking if they fit and like continually doing that over time. And it takes just forever to keep making so many models and checking them. Uh, and I mean, I was only tweaking maybe seven or eight parameters, and there are hundreds that could have potentially been right. tweaked. And so if the, if I actually did such a thorough analysis, like what I imagine is being done here, then, you know, would have taken forever. And so we had to set certain things constant to make it more tractable. And I, it sounds like this is probably a pretty similar situation. And you can only imagine, you know, if they made a mistake and had to run it again, Another six months. Yeah. That's brutal. Honestly. I mean, sometimes <laughs> I'll run something for a day or two at the at the longest and I make a mistake like, oop, I guess I'll have to run it again. But if it were months, uh, I don't know how I would do that. Yeah, yeah. Geez. Imagine if at the end of your simulation, you set it to save all the data to a file or a directory that didn't exist. You had like a typo uh. in the directory and six months into it, you realize you got to rerun it. Oh, that's the stuff of nightmares. Breaks my heart. <laughs> <laughs> So what did the authors end up finding? Is G- I won't keep you in suspense any longer. <laughs> yeah. So, so is G constant? It's constant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, excellent. <laughs> uh, what they found is that G changes by two trillionths a year, but that is within their error bounds. So that's not statistically significant. As far as they're concerned, that means G is constant. Well, it doesn't look very good for the dinosaur astronauts, but it sounds like a (laughs) thoroughly researched paper. So, Alex, are you going to also challenge our assumptions? Uh, What's another constant that might not be that you're going to be discussing? The diffuse gas fraction in the universe. So, my astrobite is called New Cosmological Detectives, using FRBs to constrain the diffuse gas fraction by Caitlin Shin. And it's written about a paper by Anthony Walters and others from 2019. Okay, a lot of words in there I don't honestly understand. (laughs) What is the diffuse gas fraction? Let's start there. Yeah, let's, let's dig into it. So the diffuse gas fraction is the fraction of baryonic matter that's trapped up in the intergalactic medium. As the name suggests, it's diffuse. It's not dense gas like you would find in the interstellar medium. And so... All of the baryonic matter that isn't trapped in the interstellar medium or trapped up in stars 
is in the intergalactic medium in this diffuse gas fraction. Okay. Okay. And you also mentioned this abbreviation, FRB. So could you tell us what that stands for and what these objects are? Uh, I can tell you one of those things. So, (laughs) (laughs) And and FRB is a fast radio burst, and it was first discovered in 2007 with a signal called the Lorimer Burst. So they're extremely bright in the radio, and they're short, lasting less than 50 milliseconds. And it's a radio pulse, and there are some that repeat and others that don't. We right now don't fully understand why some repeat and some do not. But there are some models that recently predicted that the fast radio bursts are likely due to radiation from strong flares from young magnetars. And just to kind of give you some context, uh, maybe for the shock and awe value, the field strength of a magnetar is 1,000 trillion times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. Wow. I, I love this when astronomers have no idea what something is, so they just call it what they see, a fast radio <laughs> burst. <laughs> because right, we, we yeah, don't... you can get a lot from that name. <laughs> exactly. We don't know what a magnetar even is, right? Like, it's just a theory at this point. There are observations of magnetars, but being able to fully explain how you get from a progenitor to a magnetar is not well understood right now. So what is something you can do with an FRB, as we know? So, like almost all other things in astrophysics, we can use FRBs to probe something that isn't FRBs. In this case, using them a little bit like how you would use an X-ray. Okay, so X-rays probe our skeletons because skeletons are much more dense than our tissue. So do FRBs probe the skeleton of the universe, to take that analogy a little bit (laughs) farther? (laughs) It's actually not taking the analogy too far. In this case, (laughs) instead of probing bone and tissue, the FRB signal probes the column density of electrons that it passes through. And instead of the change in intensity like you would find uh, in an X-ray, An FRB signal features what's called a dispersion of the radio signal. So a dispersion is the time delay between the low frequency and high frequency components of the signal based on interactions with intervening electrons in the diffuse gas. So you can think about this just like refraction of light through a prism, how it's uh, white light splits up into a rainbow. Radio light splits up into low frequency and high frequency components. And it uh, disperses more or less based on how uh, many electrons you pass through. So they quantify this with a term called the dispersion measure, which is, again, just like the index of refraction. So if you pass through a larger column density of electrons, then you're going to experience a longer delay between high and low radio frequencies. And that's going to give us a higher dispersion measure. So we measure these dispersion measures of the fast radio bursts, and what does that really tell us? Yeah, so what's interesting is that for the first fast radio bursts we found, the dispersion measures were extremely high, higher than you would expect otherwise, about a thousand or more parsecs per cubic centimeter. So this Whatever tells that us- means. the units are weird on that, but basically this is a column density that's so high that if you assume a number density of electrons... FRBs have to be cosmological in distance. But again, you said that's if you assume some number density of electrons, right? So how do you get that number density? Right. So this paper actually goes the other way around. Instead of assuming a number density of electron to get the distance and the redshift, they take 
lots of different redshifts and uh, try to constrain the number density of electrons, which is um, a complement to the diffuse gas fraction. Are you saying that these fast radio bursts have to be coming from like something in the early universe? Is that what you mean by cosmological? When, yeah, when I say cosmological, I say a significant redshift, basically. So oh. they're not they're not galactic. They come from outside of our galaxy, and they come from far enough away that you can start to probe significant cosmological distances with them. Interesting. So throughout these uh, the lifetime of the radio burst as it travels through space, it passes through a whole bunch of intervening material. Yeah, so this is why it's kind of hard because there's kind of a degeneracy uh, when you you say it passed through this column density of electrons. You don't know whether it passed through an extremely dense intergalactic medium in its own galaxy before it shot out. You don't know if it passed through a, a wide region of space. Um, and so those are kind of hard to disentangle. But if you get redshift-dependent dispersion measures then you can actually break apart the composition of the intergalactic medium and the circumgalactic medium and actually find out where there's, those electrons are located. And that's what they did in this research. So, exactly. So to do this, they simulated catalogs of mock fast radio bursts out to redshift of three and tried to constrain two different models. One was a constant diffuse gas fraction with redshift, and one was one that varied with redshift. So how do they go from these dispersion measure simulations of FRBs to the diffuse gas fraction? There they have to combine lots of different cosmological parameters, some from Planck, some from 1A supernova. You've got to throw all this together based on what we know, and then you can get the uh, diffuse gas fraction. Hmm. So what, what do these constraints look like? Are FRBs going to be the next big cosmological probe? It's unlikely. It can't tell us much more about the state of the universe uh, in terms of larger cosmological constraints, but it actually can constrain the diffuse gas fraction a fair bit. So they found that with 100 fast radio bursts and dispersion measures as a function of redshift information, they can constrain the diffuse gas fraction to a few percent and to even smaller than 1% for a catalog of 1,000 fast radio bursts. So this puts strong constraints on the diffuse gas fraction, which can tell us if it's constant or not with redshift. But right now we only have fast radio bursts uh, on the order of about 80, and uh, not many are localized, which you need to get the dispersion measure as a function of redshift. So we're going to have to get a lot more before we're able to do this. So is it constant? I will tell you in 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alex, give us the one sentence takeaway. Even if we don't fully understand them, we can use fast radio bursts to discover if the diffuse gas composition is constant with redshift, but only once we've built up a large enough sample. And how about you, Melina? There are lots of ways that orbits can be altered or can evolve over time, and WASP-12b is an especially fascinating case where an exoplanet's orbit is decaying on a human timescale, and it's spiraling into its star fast enough for us to actually observe, although... The exact mechanism of how the star causes this tidal dissipation isn't entirely agreed upon as of this paper. And that brings us to you, Will. What is your one-sentence takeaway? Newton's gravitational constant G is still constant. Uh, and that's according to a really old star with a really great sense of time. 
I could probably learn a few things from that sort of sense of time. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't we all? <laughs> Couldn't we all? Which brings us to the discussion portion of this episode. See, I'm, I'm doing pretty good on time. <laughs> uh, I want to start off with the question of challenging the constancy of all these things. So it has a big potential upside and it can get us to question a lot of the different studies that we do, but it's also a little bit sensationalist. Is it really worth studying scientifically if there may be people who do it solely for publicity? It's an interesting question. Uh, I think that research like this definitely gets picked up by secondary media that's looking to publicize science results and may take a sensationalist spin on it. Because G is a well-known constant that that, that get, gets picked up. But the research itself is both challenging and impressive. Um, Stereoseismology is, is, a, is an impressive field. And so I think there's, there's a difference between putting a sensationalist spin on things and doing research with the intention of being sensationalist. Yeah, I agree. I think it's definitely very valuable to continually question our assumptions in science. Uh, so all of these constants being constant is sort of an assumption that we hold, but if that isn't necessarily true, then that is going to have some really far-reaching implications. And so I think that this is a really valuable field where we should really be continually questioning all of our constants. Uh, I think my astrobite was a little bit of a cop-out for this question because we know that the year isn't exactly constant. And so, you know, of course, I'm going to say it's super valuable to study especially these systems where you can actually see it changing and it is sensational to talk about a star engulfing its planet like it's not something that sounds super dull and the media will pick that up but i think it's also really important valuable science where there are only a few cases actually i think this is the only case that's pretty clear and so we don't really have a lot of opportunities to study systems like this and should take advantage when they come along yeah, Milena, I thought you said it really well when you said challenging assumptions, right? Science is all about challenging assumptions and mm. constants are a really big assumption. And if we're only able to measure something within error bars, then we're not sure whether it's actually constant or whether it varies over a really, really short or sorry, long time scale, even though that has widespread ramifications mm. for lots of other studies. So I think it's useful regardless of what the headlines might say at the end of the day. There's also a point that I wanted to touch upon, which is that it seems like all of our astrobites uh, at their root are trying to understand how stars work. Maybe it wasn't the full focus of my paper, but uh, fast radio bursts trying to understand them means trying to understand the progenitors of magnetars and why they should flare the way that they do. Uh, Milena, it seems like yours was trying to model convective cores and Wills, you were trying to get to the bottom of pulsations of asteroseismology. So why is it that it seems like stars are such a big foundational piece to a lot of these very different subdisciplines? I mean, in many ways, stars are sort of the fundamental unit of astronomy, right? Where if you're studying planets, stars are the actual light that you see. Um, in many cases, I guess direct imaging, your planet might have a little bit of its own uh, light as well. And we see light from stars and other galaxies. That's why we actually see them light up. And so I think the fact that, first of all, we can get photons from these stars is really valuable. You know, these are of course. one of the really important units where we're actually able to get 
these valuable photons to learn something about the systems where, you know, we need these photons in order to learn about all the other stuff around the stars. And also stars are just, I guess they're something that we have been able to see for so long, even just with the naked eye, that it makes sense that they would be so fundamental to what we understand now about astronomy. What do you think, Will? Oh, I agree with Milena entirely. Um, I think it, a lot of it comes down to this is what we can see. I'll throw out another theory. Um, most of the universe is empty space. I mean, empty as in really, really low density. Um, I recall once doing a calculation that the observable universe has on average one atom per cubic meter. I mean, that's it's wild how much space there is in Diffuse. space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And stars are the the opposite case. Um, stars make up the vast majority of the mass in the universe and have actual densities um, that are extremely high compared to most of the universe. Planets too, but planets are accompanying stars. And in a planetary system, stars are the overwhelming majority of the mass. Um, I mean, in the solar system, over 99% of the mass is in the sun, maybe even higher. So uh, I think stars represent what there actually is in the universe predominantly. Hmm, good point. Yeah, I think it's interesting that, I don't know, we, we talk a lot about how we ran lots of models, we still don't understand uh, stars that well, but like both of you said, if the first thing that as astronomers we could see was starlight, the first thing we took observations of was starlight, you would think that that would be the first place we would start to model and simulate, but... I guess it's just because astrophysics as a field has only been around for, what, 50, 100 years connecting our observations to our physics? Yeah. It's hard to exactly pin down how old it is because, I mean, people have been observing, you know, since the time of Galileo with telescopes. So it's it's hard to say, you know, they wouldn't have called themselves astrophysicists. It wasn't a lot of physics. It was more observation. But, yeah, I, I think... I think, you know, only in the last really 100 years have we been able to develop models that explain the things that are observed. Interesting. Well, hopefully in the next 100 years, we'll have much better handle on uh, exactly how stars work. <laughs> and with that, we'll conclude episode seven of Astro Soundbites. Constants or not? If you want to read the three astrobites we talked about here today and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. And if you want to hear any more of our fabulous episodes, including this one, we now have seven online. Check them all out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, everyone. And don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. I'm going to start calling it Astero Soundbites. <laughs> 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 the worst. <laughs>